Well, I know that you've all counted the cost of discipleship this morning because it's really hot in here. Um, and the fact that you're here and haven't left yet is, is a testimony to, I hope, following Jesus. There are, yeah, I know. You're a fan. <laughs> we, should get some, we should get some fans in here. That's a, that's a good thing. I'll put that on the checklist. In the meantime, thank you for, for counting the cost this morning. I'll, I'll try and keep things brief because it's probably going to start to smell in here any moment. Not you. I'm, I'm sorry. That was terrible. <laughs> Let's go to the book of Ruth this morning. Take your Bible to the book of Ruth. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some back there on the table. Daryl's back there right now. He could potentially hand you one. If you need one, put your hand in the air. He'd love to bring you one. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 4. We're coming to our, the end of our time in Ruth. This week and next week, we'll wrap up our time. We're going to read the first 12 verses this morning in Ruth chapter 4. I'll read these for us, beginning in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming the exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought the, from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathath. And be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. We've explored a lot of different themes in our time in Ruth. We've thought about a handful of things. And last week when we came to the end of chapter 3, we saw a righteous response by Boaz in a potentially hazardous situation, a potentially 
pretty tough situation. We saw that Boaz was the same righteous, upright, godly, biblically informed man during the nighttime as he was during the daytime. And we know that nothing good happens in the middle of the night. I mean, yet Boaz responds righteously in the middle of the night, just like he did in chapter two in the middle of the day. And one of the ways that this was true, we saw, was in his long-term thinking. He was thinking beyond just the moment. He was patient. He exercised patience. In ancient Israel, when someone found themselves in significant need, it was the duty of a close family member to come alongside that individual and care for them. This person would have been called a redeemer. Boaz wants to care for Ruth, to marry her and provide for her. But Boaz knew of a redeemer even closer to Ruth than himself. And so he informs Ruth in the middle of the night, he informs Ruth of what needs to be done. He intends to provide for her and care for her by marrying her. But nothing further can happen between them until this deal that we see in chapter 4 go down, goes down. And so that's where we find ourselves as we enter chapter 4. This is the final act of this four-act story. And last week we said, we saw Boaz, and he, as a biblically informed man, we saw that as if you make your God's words your food, you won't compromise in moments of temptation. When sin and temptation comes our way, we won't compromise if we make God's word our food. If we're regularly, daily ingesting food, we will not compromise and fall into sin when temptation comes our way. Chapter 4 is the follow-through of that thought. Chapter 4 is the follow-through of that thought. When Boaz woke up in chapter 3 and saw Ruth at his feet, he didn't compromise and fall into sin, even though no one was watching. It was pitch black. He couldn't see. He couldn't even see who Ruth was sitting at his feet. And the act planned by Naomi and executed by Ruth could have been interpreted as sexually suggestive, and yet he does not take advantage of the situation, despite the fact that no one is there to observe it. Rather, he quickly collects his thoughts decides how to proceed, informed not by his flesh, but informed by God's word. And then God's word drives Boaz to follow through. What is it next that must happen for this story to continue? God's word drives Boaz to follow through. Boaz is righteous in his response to the chapter 3 situation, and he's righteous in his reaction and his proactivity that comes next. His action is not contained to his reaction, but manifests itself in his proactivity. And his proactivity here in chapter 4, we can learn a lot from this. So let's consider a couple of things in this text this morning. Two things this morning. Boaz is proactive in settling the matter, and Boaz exercises endurance in settling the matter. We'll take those two things in turn. We'll spend the most, most of our time on the first one, the proactivity that Boaz displays in settling the matter in chapter 4. If you look to the last verse in chapter 3, verses, verse 18 in chapter 3, just look back up the page. This is Naomi speaking. She says, wait my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but settle the matter today. And then we kind of like fade to black, right? Like she, and that this is storytelling, and then we move to the next act and fade to black. And then as the, as the light comes back up, we see Boaz sitting at the city gate. He's been there maybe for a little while. 
He has a matter to settle. He is resolved to settle this matter. The gate was a place in, in ancient Israel. The gate would have been a place where official business would have been conducted. The business that we see, this transaction that's made here, uh, is, is made at the gate. It's sort of like the town hall. Boaz has prepared himself, hoping that he can be a redeemer today. And behold, the text says, behold, this redeemer of whom Boaz has spoken came by. The, the, the Bible doesn't give us this guy's route, what he, where he usually travels on a day-to-day basis. But we can be sure, by looking at chapter 4, we can be sure that this is God's direction here. We can be sure that God is providentially at work in this guy's heart. The word behold that we see here in verse 1, and behold the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. That word should probably have an exclamation point by it. Look, look, here he comes. Here's the man who Boaz has business with. The very person whom Boaz has business is providentially passing by. And we see the hand of the Lord at work. God is gathering in Ruth. Under the wings, under his wings, with his mysterious orchestration of every step of this guy. This guy doesn't even get a name, probably because he relinquishes his duty as redeemer. He doesn't get a name. He's not part of God's ultimate redemptive plan, even though he has an opportunity to be. Remember a couple weeks ago, we quoted uh, Proverbs 16.9. We're thinking about Proverbs 16.9, especially as it relates to this text. In the book of Ruth. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. This guy got up in the morning and somehow his heart decided that he would walk past the gate. Maybe he decided to check out if any business was happening, not knowing that approaching the gate there would be someone there who had business with him. Or maybe this was his route. It was always his route. Every single morning he woke up and walked past this gate and God had established him in his rhythm over years and brought him to this point, this important moment. What we learn here is that God establishes our every step. The heart of the man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. You make plans, we should. We should make a lot of plans. Praise God for planners and like online calendars. I like those things. Those things are helpful. We should have a plan. We should have a proactive approach to life. And no doubt that each of us in this room has goals. Your goal is to get out of this room and get cool. That's one of my goals. I'm not letting you go yet, though. Just hang on. Benjamin Franklin famously said, By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. There's a biblical principle there. We're proactive in the way that we approach our life. It's absolutely true. But your plans take into account that God establishes your steps. Friends, do our plans take into account that God establishes our steps? Uh, We plan and know that your plans could not possibly take into account everything. We get that. We're not all knowledgeable about every situation. We're not aware of every nuance in our day. 
every person whose path we're going to cross as we go to the grocery store, as we go to work, as we come home. But God is sovereign over everything. He knows everything. And so we hold that intention. We see in one hand that our plans are imperfect because there's no way that we can know everything. And in the other hand, God does know everything. His plans are perfect. Again, my personality type is, is I like planning. Planning is good. I, I enjoy it. It's fun. I like to think about all the possible outcomes and figure out what the best approach is before diving into anything. Personally, I think that's a pretty good process. Maybe you disagree. That's fine. But I have to recognize that my planning is futile if I'm not trusting the Lord in it. And what's the best way to acknowledge the truth of Proverbs 16.9? What's the best way to acknowledge the truth of Proverbs 16.9? That is God who establishes our steps. What's the best way to do that? I think it's a couple of things. First, plan every detail. Secondly, pray. Those two things. Let me explain that. Um, this is not an approach to life that's uh, let go and let God. I think that that misses the mark of what Bible, the Bible tells us to do. I think that we strive to make plans and, and make them well. I think let go and let God misses that we're responsible for the plans that we make. But I think the, the biblical principle here is to plan well and pray hard. I'm going to say this. You'll see it on the screen behind me. Prayer is the full admission that your plans are fallible and that God's can't be foiled. Prayer is the full admission that your plans are fallible and that God's can't be foiled. If your plans don't take into account prayer, then you should probably scrap them and start over. If your day doesn't include intake of God's word and time spent in prayer, You've planned your day in such a way that ignores that God establishes your steps. And if you say that you don't have time, you've missed the point. The, the question is, how could we not have time to go to the God of the universe, the God who created all things, and place the weight of your sin on his son because he loves you? The one on whom we depend. Everything in our lives depends on God. Martin Luther once asked what, his was, was asked, what, what were his plans for the day? And you'll hear that question probably before you go home today. You'll probably, someone will probably ask you, what are your plans for the rest of the day? Luther responded this. He said, work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Luther didn't have time not to spend a significant amount of time in prayer. I think we have more time than we think. We, we spend a lot of time on our smartphones or whatever device. We do. We have a lot more time than we think, than we let on. In contrast to that, uh, Luther was under constant threat of being imprisoned or burned at the stake. He had a wife, six kids, four sermons to prepare and preach every week. And on top of that, he found some time to launch maybe one of the most important historical events in the last 500 years.
But he didn't have time not to spend a significant amount of time in prayer. And again, prayer is dependence on God. Prayer is the full admissions that your plans are fallible and that God's can't be foiled. The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And the steps of this man that we see in Ruth chapter 4 he were established and he found himself at the gate and turns when he hears the word. Turn aside, friends, sit down here. Boaz is speaking to him. And so he turns aside and he sits down. Boaz sees his opportunity and knows how to proceed. Boaz is proactive. He doesn't wait to figure out how to find out how this guy is going to do. What is he going to do in this matter of Ruth? He gathers the leaders of the community, sets them down, and he prepares to do business. And we see here another contrast. If we think back to what we've learned about Naomi, and we think what we've learned about Boaz, we see another contrast here. Naomi operates in impatience, but Boaz shows patience on the threshing floor with Ruth. And he prepares and plans to do what's necessary, even when Naomi's impatient thinking puts Ruth in a compromising position. So we ask, what's the difference? Again, here's another dramatic tension here that we find in this book. Proactivity and patience. How do we distinguish the two? How do we know what it means to be proactive, and how do we know when we're acting impatiently? Again, I'm going to give you two things. Two things. First, first, you're acting proactively when you've clearly understood what God's word requires of you. That's the first thing. Do I have a clear picture of what God's word requires of me? The second thing, when you've taken the matter to prayer by thereby acknowledging that God is the one who establishes your steps. Boaz knew God's word. His actions were biblically informed. He knew what God's word said about being a redeemer, and therefore he was going to be the redeemer of Ruth. So his proactivity was not impatience because it was firmly grounded in what God told him. Firmly grounded in God's word and was subject to the understanding that although Boaz had plans, it was God again who established his steps. Let's just exercise. Let's just do that. Let's, a, a common question that would come up in our world, either someone that we're engaged with or maybe ourselves. question is this. Should I proactively pursue a different job? Should I proactively pursue a different job? If we're asking ourselves a question like that, what, do we need to, what are some important things that we need to take into consideration? Honestly, ask yourself some questions about what you know God's word requires of you. Maybe this. Let's start here. Will this job grant me more opportunity to carry out the commission to make disciples? Will it grant me the same opportunity? Or will it grant me less opportunity? That should be taken into consideration. Will this job give me more opportunity to be together with God's people on a Sunday morning and throughout the course of the week? Or the same opportunity? Or less opportunity? Will this job give me more opportunity to love my spouse and grow together as one flesh? The same opportunity or less opportunity? Will this job give me more opportunity to love, care for, guide, lead my family, not just financially, but also diligently in spiritual matters? Will it give me the same opportunity to do those things? Or will it give me less opportunity? We see the principles there, right? That's just one instance. 
Should I pursue this job? Should I pursue a different job? What does God say and require of you? What, as a child of God, are you privileged to do? Knowing God through his word, loving him and your neighbor, carrying out Christ's commission, being together with your family, church family too, that's Buffalo City Church, not forsaking being together, growing together with your spouse, reflecting Christ and his bride, the church, fulfilling your responsibilities to your family, and raising and providing for your kids' needs, not just financially, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally. These are questions that we ask. We say, does this rob the opportunity to do some of these things? Then we should not consider it. And as we think about taking a different job or whatever situation, whatever decision that you're faced with, you should ask, what actions and attitudes reflect who I am in Christ? And then pray. Pray something as simple as, Lord, establish my steps. Establish my steps. Friends, I believe this is a biblical, God-honoring approach to decision-making. And it's proactive. Remember a couple weeks ago we said this, God will never give you a task that subverts the commission to make disciples. God will never give you a task that subverts the mission to make disciples. Oftentimes, I think inside, internally, we process through some of these things. We say, my life situation is, is just not conducive right now to this. God put me here. I don't necessarily have time to do this or pursue this all out yet right now. I can't really live my life on mission according to what God has told me in Christ when he said, go therefore make disciples of all nations. Or maybe... We say, my personality doesn't enjoy being around people, so I can't make disciples right now. I need to grow a little bit as a human, as a person. The truth that destroys that line of thinking is, it's God who establishes our steps. I pray that we would start praying that God would open our eyes to see opportunities around us. I was texting this week with one of you who had shown the love of Jesus to an unbeliever through helping him move, through inviting him to have dinner with her family, through inviting him into this space. And this person who joyfully served another texted me and said, I definitely need the work of the Spirit because I dislike socializing. I dislike socializing. That, that is the perfect response. Yes! Wonderful. I was blown away by that. No excuses. The Spirit can work in you and does despite you. That's the point. The Spirit of Christ that dwells inside of you, that's the Spirit that makes dead things alive, can certainly work inside of you despite your personality type. There's no discussion of Boaz's personality type. There is discussion of his resolve, discussion of his character, discussion of his integrity, which is not governed by personality type or temperament. If you want to know how to proceed in any decision in life, know what God says about you and what's required of you and acknowledge it's God that establishes your steps. That's what Boaz shows us here in the first part of chapter 4 in Ruth. But then we see Boaz's endurance in the matter also. This task is placed before him, and he's proactive in it. But he, he's met with 
frankly, some opposition. He tells the potential redeemer the details of the situation, right? And immediately we are led to think, who is this guy? Who is this guy that showed up, this no-name man who showed up and appeared and is a closer redeemer than Boaz himself? But somehow he's apparently unaware of this situation. Remember when Ruth came back in chapter 1 with Naomi, when Naomi came back and Ruth with her? Remember that it stirred some things up and it made a pretty big ruckus? This guy doesn't even get a name, probably because, again, he shirks his responsibility as redeemer ultimately. But look at how the events play out. Naomi has this parcel of land that comes to her through her late husband, Elimelech, and care for her would involve buying the land and using it, right? Making good on it. That's what being a redeemer in the situation would mean. And Boaz asks him his intentions, and then we see at the end of verse 4, uh-oh, he says, I will redeem it. And immediately as readers, we're led to think, what? This guy's going to redeem it? He's going to take this? That's not part of the plan. That guy wasn't supposed to say that. He's like, nah, dude, it's, it's yours. But Boaz doesn't waver. Verse 5, right? More details. This includes Ruth, the Moabite widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then in verse 6, we get the response that we're hoping for. Right? This guy's like, I can't do that. I can't, I can't take this on because it's going to impair my own inheritance. I don't want to allow that to become a problem for my children. And in verses 7 through 10, the deal is sealed. Right? We got this interesting sandal thing happening. This guy doesn't make a biblically informed decision according to what God has commanded him as redeemer nearest to Naomi and Ruth. Boaz waits in the wings prepared to make that happen. This guy is worried again about the impairing of his own inheritance. And Boaz stands in contrast by standing at the ready to care for and assume the role of redeemer in his place. And Boaz endures. It may seem like a small instance, but it is opposition. Friends, when we go into an interaction with someone and we get a response that maybe we weren't prepared for in our own heart, how do we how do we respond? How do we respond? Boaz endures. At the end of the verse, for this guy, he says, in the verse of four, he says, the guy says, I'll redeem it. Boaz didn't give up, and he gives the man the remaining details. Boaz knew what God required, and Boaz wanted to be the providential of wings of God that came over Ruth and that she took refuge under. My mind goes to James 4.17, where James says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Boaz knew the right thing here, and he didn't waver under the quick appearances of a setback, but with resolve assumed the role of the Redeemer to care for Ruth and to be the wings of God. We therefore look to Boaz. What can we learn from him yet again? What can we learn from him yet again? Simple. In, this, in the Christian life, temporary setbacks will come. Temporary setbacks will come in this life. You know this. You will get a firm no when you thought you saw a green light. When you thought there was a green light and you get a firm no. Maybe you'll share the gospel with a coworker who seems increasingly receptive, but then they shut you down. 
Maybe you raise your children according to the word of God and they have a significant season of rebellion. Maybe you enter a time where you and your spouse are just not on the same page and you have to work so hard to find common ground. And this morning, as we wrap up our time together in conclusion, this leads us to Jesus. This leads us to Jesus. We see Jesus come through in the portrait that Boaz paints for us. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith for who, the, for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Just Jesus... Jesus Christ is the one with whom we identify. Was there anything in this world that would seem to be a more dramatic setback than the cross? Anything. Just a few days earlier, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. The people hailed him as a conquering king to rid them of their political oppression. And just a few days later, he was hanging lifeless on a cross. Would, would there be anything that would seem to be more dramatic setback than that? The answer is no. It's not a question of if, but when setbacks come in this life. And I'm talking about setbacks in following Jesus. And almost everything in our day-to-day threatens this. The world in which we live that's under the curse of sin, almost everything in our day threatens this. Will we respond in faith and trust that it's God who establishes our steps when we're just trying to make ends meet and the car breaks down? Some of you are acquainted with situations like that right now, right in this very moment. Will you trust God in that moment? In that moment, your, your trajectory is being threatened by something as simple as a broken down vehicle. Will you respond in faith and trust that God is the one who establishes your steps? In those moments, he wants to grow you. He wants to build you up in himself. It is God who established that very step and intends it for your good. God is working in you. Your kids may scream and get sick. Your car may break down. Your roof may leak. If you're in Christ, God is working in you. These can't prevent your obedience to the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. Why? Because not even death could stop his mission. Do you think that God will not produce what he intends to produce in you? He can and will, and he calls you to live a life in step with what he requires. He says, here's the spirit of Christ to do what I require. The strength you have to obediently endure in this life isn't a conjured strength. It's not something that you just dig deep for. It's something that comes from the outside. Apart from Jesus, you're not strong. You're weak. Apart from Jesus, you're not worthy. You're worthless. 
Apart from Jesus, your efforts are fruitless. Gosh, that's harsh. This is a biblically informed view. We, we allow this to shape who we are. In Christ, we have received all things, and we refuse to allow social media word art to dictate our worldview. Jesus is your everything. He says this, John 15, 5. I don't know how else to interpret this other than we need him for everything. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't conjure obedience. You can't conjure strength. You can't conjure worth. You can't conjure fruit. But you can abide in Jesus, and all of those things are yours. They belong to you. Apart from Christ, none of those things belong to you. In Christ, all of those things belong to you. You may not feel like it. You may not feel like God is producing those things, but praise God that our feelings don't govern our reality. Setbacks in the Christian life will occur. Rely on God. Trust that he's producing something in you. Here's a snippet of another text. I shouldn't, I shouldn't even like, I don't even need to write a sermon. I just need to ask you to text me. Here's another snippet of another text I got from one of you a couple weeks back. The interruptions of the way I think life should be seem to be the blessings of discipline and cultivation of the fruit of spirit in disguise. We're going to pack that. It's a really well thought out sentence. The interruptions of the way I think life should be seem to be the blessings of discipline and the cultivation of the fruit of the Spirit in disguise. My wife and I were talking the other day about this kind of like Christian elevated idea of when we spend time in God's Word and we spend time in prayer, we say quiet time. I don't know about you, but as a father of three children with two more on the way, I don't get a lot of quiet time. There's just not a lot of quiet time. Does that mean that God's not producing something in me? No, absolutely not. He's, he's promised me that he will. What this text that I received was reminding me that the interruptions of the way I think life should be, I should sit down with my cup of coffee in the morning at 6.30 a.m. and someone's not screaming their head off or chasing someone around yelling, he's going to bite me. That's not, that, I don't get that. And many of you in this room don't get that either. And for some reason, we've constructed that to mean that God isn't able to work in us. No. God's using that. He's building something in you. He's creating something in you. What I'm saying is this. Could what we call setbacks, could what we be saying that we've called a setback is really God's perfect plan? Could what we've called a setback really be God's perfect plan? Could this disruption of our plan really just be an indicator that God is establishing our steps and that we need to trust that? Could it mean 
What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he writes, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Could that mean that God is using what we perceive as a setback to produce endurance, to produce character, to produce hope? Yes, yes, and yes. Boaz didn't shrink back when he heard the words, I will redeem it. Jesus didn't shrink back when he was reviled and chastised when he was tortured and spit upon, when he was mocked and murdered, your redemption came at a great cost, but is offered to you, friends, freely. I've often thought about our Buffalo City Church family when I get to Galatians 6. And verses 9 and 10 in Galatians 6 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What is the good? Do you see that on the screen behind me? Yeah. What is the good that Paul is talking about? What is the good that Paul is talking about? Living according to God's word, obedience that flows from your source, Christ Jesus himself. Friends, no amount of obeying can get you right with God. No amount of seeing the imperatives of scripture, what's commanded here, can get you, and following that, can get you right with God. Because the only way that you can keep those things anyway is through the strength that comes from God alone. God isn't taking a scale and measuring good and bad. He's like, oh yeah, that guy's good. Nope, she's bad. No. God offers redemption freely in Christ Jesus. And it is Christ Jesus who obeyed perfectly. And by doing so, granted you, if you're in him, the power and the strength to obey. That's the good that Paul is talking about. When you see a command of in Scripture... And you say, I need to live according to this. This is the good that God intends for me. This is the good that God is producing in me. It's not a burdensome task. It is grace given to me in Christ Jesus. I now have the strength and the power to obey all that he has commanded me. Don't grow tired and weary of doing good that made you do it. That good, the flesh won't have the final say. God says that. He promises that. The flesh won't have the final say. God will produce something in you. The spirit will have the final say. He says, don't give up. If we don't give up, don't give up. Not giving up is the marker. Your perceived setbacks They won't stop God's work. Don't give up. Exercising the strength you have through the Spirit of Christ is the proof of God's work. Let that obedience overflow into the lives of others, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what he says right at the end. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Are you so resolved to live like God intended, worshiping God with all of your life, trusting and obeying the spirit, in the spirit of Christ, that it overflows in the lives of others. 
Look at that little phrase embedded right there. We might gloss over it again. As you have opportunity. As we have opportunity. Paul knew the Galatians had opportunity. Friends, we, we have opportunity also. We have opportunity also. Are your perceived setbacks taking away that opportunity? Scripture says no, they're not. They're not taking away that opportunity. They are the opportunity, rather, to do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. I hope you see that this morning. Don't, don't run out of here. We're just going to finish. We're going to stand up. We're going to sing a song. I'm going to get up in new announcements. You know the drill. We're halfway out the door. Don't, don't run out of here without looking for that opportunity. Don't run out of here without looking for an opportunity to encourage a brother and sister. Look around and find someone and express gratitude for the way that you see God working in their life. Don't let another moment pass without seizing an opportunity to do good to everyone. There are lots of one another commands given in the New Testament. They're all very simple. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Care for one another. Encourage one another. Serve one another. Be at peace with one another. Honor one another. Devote yourself to one another. Be peaceable with one another. Instruct one another. Show grace to one another. Show concern for one another. Forgive one another. Pray for one another. President, I'm convinced your perceived setbacks cannot, cannot take away opportunities for doing good, for doing these things. And if we're in Christ, friends, God is pleased with you. If you're in Christ, God is pleased with you in an overwhelming way. And by doing those things, Looking at those one another commands, we're not, we're not earning God's pleasure, but rather we're just simply identifying with Christ. He did those things for you and now calls us to do the same for one another and the strength that he provides. Boaz, friends, Boaz had a matter to settle. The redemption of Ruth through the offering of his sandal. Jesus, on the other hand, had a matter to settle, the redemption of the whole world through the offering of his blood. This is the one in whom we trust. This is the one who produces things in us. This is the one who gives us the strength to obey. This is the one who we worship. Let's pray.